You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. When we return in Civil War Talk Radio, we'll ask our guest, Richard McMurray, what he would do in the Civil War time machine. Have you let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer to return your call when you want to update content? You don't have to. Now you can easily and instantly manage your own website content using affordable Avalar technology. Avalar is a website development and hosting company that provides turnkey internet solutions for companies like yours that need to stay focused on core business. Avalar gives you the power to control your website and make updates and additions in real time without having to learn HTML or other complicated programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R.com. Vitality is a natural expression of health, success, and fulfillment. And yet it's rare to meet people bubbling with vitality. That's because most of us push ourselves too hard. And when we trigger the internal alarms that tell us to change our diets, attitudes, or activities, we ignore them. Allowing outside pressures to override our internal alarms undermines our health, sabotages our success, and limits our potential. If you're ready to reclaim your natural vitality, to begin living a life you love, visit thevitalyou.com. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich at East Carolina University, talking today with Richard P. McMurray, author of Two Great Rebel Armies, as well as The Fourth Battle of Winchester Toward a New Civil War Paradigm, and numerous other books on the Civil War. Richard, we left off last time talking about your current work. You're editing a collection of uh, letters from a Confederate soldier. Yes, um, George Knox Miller, the 8th Confederate Cavalry. They do give some real insights into life of a cavalryman during the war, and I think into the mind of a very intelligent, very well-read, very articulate young white Southerner during the 1860s. Uh, I'm also working, you asked what I was working on, which was how we got off into that. I'm also working on sort of an exploratory essay of some sort about Joseph E. Johnston, but I have no idea what that will turn into. Uh, Interesting to see how that goes. I was looking at another book today on my shelf, which is one that that you and I both play a, a role in. It's called Revisioning the Civil War, edited by James C. Bresnahan. Um, I'm I'm not impressed by the title because I'm not sure revisioning is actually a word in the English language. Um, perhaps revising uh, <laughs> would be the, the correct noun or correct uh, word. Nonetheless, it's uh, a fascinating book. You you may remember Mr. Bresnahan contacted a number of historians, uh, including you, and asked us all various hypothetical questions. And he has published this book. Do you have a copy of it by any chance? Did you get... uh, I don't have one here with me. It's it's nowhere near where I am now. It, it, In fact, I'm not sure where it is. 
Well, I, I got it, and I thought, I'll look at this someday. And uh, I picked it up this morning before uh, we got on the, the phone together to talk about things, just to see what you had to say, and for that matter, to see what I had to say, because it was a while ago since I wrote to him. And the book is really quite uh, quite entertaining, I will say. Uh, he talks to a number of people who uh, have a lot of interesting things to say, a lot, a lot of people who will be familiar to listeners of this program who have been on this program, um, uh, Ed Bars, Richard Berenger, going alphabetically here, Peter Carmichael, Larry Daniel, Mark Grimsley, uh, John Hennessy, and so on. There's Richard McMurray, Kenneth No, Donald Fons, many interesting people. And they, uh, they engage in the sort of conversation you and I have been having uh, uh, for the last uh, few minutes about some of the things that might have happened uh, but didn't. At the very end, he then asks uh, some just very short questions, one-word answer questions. Uh, for example, what was the turning point of the war? And I see you've answered consistently, as you did in our first segment here, that it was the Confederate occupation of Kentucky in 1861. Yes, I think it was all downhill for the Confederacy from then on. No, I, I had voted for the Emancipation Proclamation, and you and I are both minorities of one for our choice. <laughs> uh, no one else uh, goes with that. But Gettysburg, uh, Gettysburg tied for first with four votes, but not yours nor mine. Uh, Fort Donelson got four votes also, uh, which I think is a, a much better uh, choice than Gettysburg. Uh, there's a, let me throw out another one from here. Who was the most underrated general of the Civil War? I think, and I, I would exclude the Union generals because although I, I know something about a great many of them, I'm not anywhere near as familiar with them as I am with the Confederates, I would say Braxton Bragg. And and once again, you're in a minority of one on that. Uh, I'm surprised that there's even one. Well, well, you're the one. Uh, yes, I know. <laughs> I think that, that was a surprising answer. But as you pointed out in our earlier conversation, it's not uh, much of his, his troubles are, are caused by his subordinates uh, as well as the leadership in Richmond. Yes, and if you look at some of the strategic things in particular that Bragg did, particularly in the summer of 1862 when he replaced Beauregard, who had replaced Sidney Johnston, in command of the what became the Army of Tennessee. They were at Tupelo, Mississippi. And it was Bragg who moved them around to Chattanooga and then began what became his campaign into Kentucky. You know, that, that was one of the most brilliant strategic movements of the entire war because it got the Confederates out of the Mississippi Valley where they had no way to deal with Union naval power it got them into the central part of the Confederacy. And then Bragg started getting knives thrust into his back by Polk, whom we've mentioned, by Hardy, whom we've mentioned, by Kirby Smith, whom we've mentioned, but not in that context. And it's so difficult to figure out what Bragg would have done if he had not had that problem. And to a large extent, the problem was Jefferson Davis, who would not back him up. But those are the kinds of ideas that led me to suggest Bragg is very much underrated. Now, in contrast, we have the overrated general question, and here we both vote for Johnston, but not the same Johnston. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I'm with uh, Larry Daniel and John Y. Simon in saying that Albert Sidney Johnston is one of the most overrated generals of the war. I, I forgot that I said that, but now that I read it, I guess I have to challenge you. Uh, <laughs> 
my, I think my thinking there was simply he's overrated only in that he just didn't prove himself one way or another before his, his unfortunate demise, so we just don't know. You, on the other hand, are, uh, choose Joe Johnston uh, for reasons we've talked about already. Um, but again, you're, you're in a minority here of one as well. I, I'm impressed by your originality uh, in these answers, and I don't mean that facetiously. I, I, I think these are very uh, uh, thought-provoking uh, points. Uh, let me throw one more out. Uh, the question is, if you could be a battlefield observer during the war, like Fremantle, which battle would you wish to observe, presumably from a position of, of safety? Uh, and I chose uh, Gettysburg just because of the spectacle, because it's open, you could see it all. You picked the Battle of Franklin. I, I have been very much intrigued by the Battle of Franklin for for years, I guess ever since I was stationed at Fort Campbell 40-some-odd years ago and went over there for the first time to visit the battlefield. I think if you know the history of that campaign and all of the things that went into it, the emotions behind it, Again, looking at it primarily from the Confederate side with Spring Hill the night before and then that incredible assault at Franklin on late evening of November 30th, 1864. It, it just intrigues me. Patrick Claiborne, who's my favorite Confederate general, was killed there in, in what used to be the parking lot of the Pizza Hut, but I understand that has been redeemed now and is going to be preserved as part of the battlefield. Yes. Uh, it may stem from the fact that I have a first cousin who's considerably older than I who served on the aircraft carrier Franklin in World War II, which most people think was named for Benjamin Franklin, but she was not. She was named for the Battle of Franklin. So I've, I've just had a long period of interest in that battle. And Was that the carrier that was hit by a kamikaze? Uh, I believe she was hit by bombs. I think a Japanese bomber got through when they had the fuel lines and everything on deck. It, it took incredible damage, but they were able to salvage it? She did, and my cousin, my cousin was wounded in all of that. And if, if you ever see that video called The Ship That Would Not Die... That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, in that video they say she was named for Benjamin Franklin. But it's not true. She, it's not true. Ed Bars has told me she even had a plaque on the a bridge that said she was named for the Battle of Franklin, and everybody went around calling her Big Ben. Fascinating. Well, so so your your connection to Franklin is uh, both personal and historical. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. But if, if somebody's interested in that, read Wiley Sword's book, Embrace an Angry Wind, which is published in paperback as the Confederacy's last who writes a mesmerizing account of that battle. It's unbelievable. Well, that, uh, I'd, I'd, I've been to the Franklin Battlefield, and we'll recommend that, of course, to all our listeners. It is, or, or traditionally has been marred by the urban sprawl, but it does give you a chance, like at Gettysburg, where you get the vista of Pickett's Charge, you can see uh, from, from south, I think, of, of the, the field, you can see much of the land it was fought over from one single vantage point. Yeah, Winstead Hill, which is about two miles south of the epicenter of the battle, and the Confederate Army formed just to the north of that hill. And the Confederate generals were up on the hill when Hood launched them into the attack. And you've got Carnton, the plantation, the beautiful plantation house, which, thank God, has been saved. 
uh, is there, blood stains on the floor. Uh, you've got this new novel that's just come out, The Widow of the South, I forget the author's name, in which uh, he writes about the Battle of Franklin. You've got uh, Howard Barr's novel, The Black Flower, which is about the Battle of Franklin. Uh, you've got that beautiful Confederate cemetery there. It's it's uh, You also have, fortunately, a very active local preservation group that's now beginning to acquire what's left of the land and, and I hope will turn it into a really great battlefield park. Well, that that would be uh, a wonderful thing if that happens. I recall that that plantation house had one of the more interesting presentations by the staff there when they pointed out not only the house but some of the slave quarters have been preserved. And the staff pointed that out in a very matter-of-fact way, which struck me as a hopeful sign for the future in terms of public history and presentations. Uh, Rather than either ignoring the slave presence or denying it, or uh, uh, lionizing it, make, making it uh, the centerpiece, it was simply acknowledged as another part of the plantation operation uh, in in an appropriate way, uh, neither diminishing nor nor overemphasizing it. And yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And a lot of these beautiful antebellum homes that have been preserved, there's traditionally been a tendency to ignore. Exactly. The life and the role of the slaves on the plantation. And I've, I've been to a number of these, I'm sure you have too, where they try to, I don't know that they try, but they create inadvertently perhaps this moonlighted magnolia myth that all the white people in the South lived on big plantations and all the slaves were happy working in the fields and singing songs. And, you know, it, it's so good to get away from that. And there are a number of places around where slave quarters have been preserved as well as the big house and as they begin to incorporate a lot of the story of the life of the slaves it's just a it's a great thing for history well it it makes everybody's picture more complete uh how did they get those meals on the table at the big house uh it's it's something people want to know it it makes uh it, it rounds the story out without necessarily uh, turning it into a, a, a finger-pointing exercise of, of blame and acrimony. Now, uh, we're, we're running short of time, unfortunately. Let me close with another question from Mr. Bresnahan's book, uh, or two more. He asks uh, historians, which general do they respect the most? And you mentioned the one you named a moment ago, Patrick Claiborne. Uh, what is it about Claiborne that, uh, that draws your attention? It's probably the fact that the study of the Confederate generals in the West can be so depressing because so many of them were such wretched human beings, and Claiborne seems to be the big exception. Uh, He was an Irish immigrant, came to the United States, lived in Arkansas, joined the Confederate Army as a private, uh, worked his way up as, I would argue, the best division commander in the Confederate Army, certainly in the Army of Tennessee, Uh, made his famous proposal early in 1864 to free slaves so as to use them in the Confederate Army, Um, a proposal that drew a lot of criticism from some of his fellow generals and that many people think played a role in his not getting opportunity for promotion after that. And then he dies dramatically leading his division in the charge at Franklin. So it all ties in together. Indeed, uh, a remarkable figure there. The uh, I see I answered that question, which general do I respect most, and I put uh, 
uh, Sherman. I, I don't know what I was thinking <laughs> working here in North Carolina. Actually, uh, I can top you. I'm a Georgian, and Sherman, Sherman is one of the two or three generals of the war whom I admire most. Well, uh, go, go ahead with that. Well, it's just that over the past several decades working with the Atlantic campaign, working with the war in the West, I've had the opportunity to read not only Sherman's memoirs, which are a wonderful set of memoirs, but also his letters. There's a huge 900-page book that's a collection of Sherman's letters. You get to know him as an individual through his letters, and I think he's just one of the most fascinating people. In fact, he may well be the most fascinating individual, high-ranking individual connected with the Civil War. Uh, Lincoln arguably could come close, but Lincoln was a politician and a lawyer, and he probably wasn't going to tell you what he thought. But Sherman would. He's a lot like Harry Truman. <laughs> and, you know, Truman would tell you what he thought, and I'd give you some examples, but you'd get arrested by the Federal Communications Commission if I quoted Truman on the air there. But Sherman was much that same way. And he, I, the more I've gotten to know him, the more I've come to like him. And my family was run out of Georgia by Sherman, so I, I need to get that in there. So uh, uh, we're able to put the past behind us in that regard. Some well, of us. <laughs> some of us are. <laughs> at least some. That, that's true. And, and indeed, teaching in North Carolina, I, I do encounter that on occasion. Well, uh, if probably to end on a, uh, a note of unanimity, one of the uh, the first question asked was, what would, uh, which political figure do you admire most from the Civil War era? And there, uh, as in the 1864 election, we have a landslide victory for Abraham Lincoln. Uh, you chose him, I chose him, so did 18 out of 21 other historians. Uh, any thoughts about Abraham Lincoln? No, not really. Not, nothing out of the unusual. I, among politicians, um, he was a, an incredibly admirable person. I think probably the thing I most admire about him in addition to his ultimate goals, preservation of the Union and emancipation, I think what I most admire about him is his consistency. You know, he would, he, he would tell you what he was going to do, I'm going to preserve the Union, and everything he did that people would support or criticize him is directed toward that end. You know, he was criticized early in the Civil War by abolitionists for not moving against slavery, and he took the position, which I think is so obvious that if he tried to abolish slavery at the beginning of the war, that he could well drive Kentucky and Missouri into the Confederacy, and that would quite likely mean Union defeat, Confederate victory, and preservation of slavery. It, it just, you know, I just admire the guys as a human being and, and for his consistency. It, it, it is a remarkable consistency in terms of his principles. He, uh, in 1860, he was asked his views on slavery, and he said they're the same as they were uh, in 1837, and uh, as I've always said, and, and you can basically said you can look it up, and in fact you can. You go back and read his papers, and his views, his basic views uh, on the immorality of slavery, never change. And yet no. he's able, to, but he's flexible in his policies to achieve those those. Not principles. not, but but not just the immorality of slavery, also the legality of slavery. Yes, you know yes. he's very consistent on that. The law recognizes slavery. And we need to work to change the law. That's right. He, he does not advocate uh, civil disobedience necessarily. Yeah, the, the way to do it. Well, one of the 
wonderful quotations I've come across. It's from, an, I believe, a, a Union soldier. I believe he's from Iowa. I used it as a chapter title in my book on the Atlanta campaign. He said, let old Abe do it, and it is always done. And that's the way Lincoln went about both preserving the Union and the end of slavery. He did it the right way. If you do it the right way, it tends to stay done. And, and, and so it did. And speaking of things that are done, unfortunately, so is our time here today. Richard, it is always a pleasure talking with you, and I hope we can work together on a tour sometime soon, uh, or you can drop by Greenville, North Carolina, and say hello, and I'm sure our paths will cross uh, somewhere in the Civil War community. I hope so, Jerry. Thank you very much. And thank you all for listening today. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk.